0: Green Dreamer is a mostly listener-backed show, and we are still calling in for more support so we can reach our Patreon goal. To join us, starting at a gift of two dollars, you can head to Patreon.com/GreenDreamer. Support for this episode also comes from Tonle, a maker-led community that creates clothing, accessories, and homewares from reclaimed materials. Tonle centers people historically sidelined by the fashion industry as leaders and creators. And And collaboration, reciprocity, and justice are some of their core values that I feel aligned with. Right now, I'm particularly looking forward to their collaboration with Cambodian-Australian designer Natalie Lee, which will be a small capsule of hand-woven, plant-dyed clothing made with regenerative fibers like kapok from trees that grow right around the weaving center that they work with in Cambodia. To check out Tonle, you can head to tonle.com, that's spelled T-O-N-L-E dot com, again T-O-N-L-E dot com.
1: And if increasingly the world is going to be a place that's shaped by people and shaped by people's love and affections for different species, those that we don't know about risk going extinct almost before we even know that they're out there. And so to try to think about charisma both as a vehicle to get us to really engage with the natural world, but also to be aware that it's very unevenly distributed and there are things that either we are ignorant of or even worse, we're disgusted by that also fall out of, of people's concern for the natural world.
0: Today, we welcome Jamie Lorimer, who is a professor of environmental geography at the University of Oxford. His research explores the cultures and politics of wildlife conservation, and he's the author of two books, including Wildlife in the Anthropocene, Conservation After Nature, and The Probiotic Planet, Using Life to Manage Life. Jamie, we're really honored to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me on the show.
1: Great. Many thanks for the invitation. It's great to join you and to have a chance to speak to your audience.
0: Of course. So before we dive into the heart of our discussion today, I'd love for you to give us a little glimpse into your background and what it was that crystallized your interest in environmental geography and wildlife conservation.
1: Okay, so I grew up in the UK and I grew up in between very urban London and very rural Scotland. And I used to spend my holidays in the Hebrides, in the islands off the west coast of Scotland, and used to have a lot of freedom there with my brother to run around on the beaches. And I guess I got interested in wildlife in quite an early way in terms of having access to those spaces. And I went to university and and I wasn't sure what to do. And I ended up studying geography, which, at least in the UK, is this great degree because you can do lots of different things with geography and you can do some cultural studies and you can do some environmental studies and, and I quite quickly realized I wasn't so much interested in the science of nature but much more in how people come to understand the world around them, what it is about particular places and particular species that, that people find exciting and, and interesting. And so I finished my first degree and I stayed on and I did a, I did a PhD at the University of Bristol and this allowed me to spend a lovely summer traveling around the Scottish Highlands speaking to different people who were very engaged in conservation and particularly in bird conservation and trying to understand what it was that drew them into their subject, what it was that gave them such a passion for wildlife. And I was particularly interested in, in the idea of a charismatic species. What, what is it about some species that make them really charismatic? And so I studied a range of different scientists and their species to try and understand the motivations behind science and and what it was that made really passionate people so driven to dedicate their lives to, to conservation. And that planted a seed. And I've just sort of carried on in that space, teaching students, trying to get them excited about the environment, but then also studying the different ways in which people think about nature and how they get drawn into a passion for wildlife conservation.
0: Right. So as you mentioned, your earlier work looked at our species and spatial preferences in conservation. And I'd love to start here before we go into the probiotic planet. But what has it meant for us that we had been more keen on protecting certain charismatic species and that conservation efforts disproportionately neglect less aesthetic and quote-unquote pristine spaces like urban and post-industrial areas?
1: So I think it's really important if we think about what it is that conservation can do to understand that it's ultimately an expression of human values and human desires to save the world. And our love for different species is very unevenly distributed across different plants and animals and also across different types of places. So if we think about particular places, a lot of conservation emerged out of a romantic attachment to wild landscapes and a sense that the city was a an alienating place, a dirty place, a lost place that one should escape from, and you should travel out to the countryside, and that's where you would rekindle your love of nature. And clearly, there are some wonderful wild places out there outside of cities. But what it did mean is we relegated and really played down all the bits of nature that are actually much close to urban citizens, the sort of places actually where many people have their first encounters with plants or with beetles or with ants or with pigeons or with squirrels and we tended to dismiss those as unimportant but as a consequence conservation risk being quite an elite thing because it's about places that only some people can travel to so in terms of thinking about democratizing conservation we need to think about these urban spaces these places that many people have their encounters with nature i guess we're also finding that the countryside has become a very industrial place at least in in North America and, and certainly in, in Europe. You know, the intensification of farming has meant that we've lost a lot of wildlife in the countryside, but there are fragments of that wildlife that survive in cities. And so cities have also become these oases, these places in which important habitats, important species survive. I mean, if we think about charismatic species, in and of themselves, charismatic species can play a really important role in motivating people to think about the natural world and to give money towards conservation. So if you think about the panda, the panda is this amazing icon for the World Wildlife Fund. And people go to zoos and they spend a lot of money on pandas. And through the panda, organizations have raised a lot of money to do work on climate change or to do work on preventing deforestation. So the panda is what's called a flagship species. It's this iconic species that can help save a lot of other organisms. But at the same time, there are a whole load of other species that we just don't know about because no one's ever given up the time to go and study them. They're small, they're invisible, they're nocturnal, they live underwater, they live in the soil. and if increasingly the world is going to be a place that's shaped by people and shaped by people's love and affections for different species, those that we don't know about risk going extinct almost before we even know that they're out there. And so to trying to think about charisma both as a vehicle to get us to really engage with the natural world, but also to be aware that it's very unevenly distributed and there are things that either we are ignorant of or even worse, we're disgusted by that also fall out of of people's concern for the natural world.
0: Mm. Well, a lot of what you focus on really challenges dominant worldviews and perspectives that might be embedded within Even the realm of sustainability. And this is especially clear when we start to look at what you explore in your latest book, The Probiotic Planet, which is so pertinent to discuss, especially during this time during a pandemic. So, before we go into the probiotic piece, what do we need to understand in regards to how our dominant responses to various health and planetary ailments have taken on this antibiotic approach at various scales, beyond just the antibiotic drug that people might immediately think of?
1: Okay, so the book develops this argument that it's useful to think of the triumph of modern life, the ways in which we've been able to increase food availability, the way we've been able to control disease and and extend life expectancy, as the outcome of this very far reaching antibiotic way of managing the non-human world. And, And by antibiotic, I mean not just the development of particular drugs that kill particular organisms, but a whole program of activities that really reduce the complexity of the world they simplify the world they accelerate natural processes all to optimize it for human survival and human civilization and this has had all sorts of benefits will be very unequally distributed around the world but it's also now coming to be clear that that antibiotic model can be excessive that we can go too far and the almost the over-success of the application of the antibiotic model is now creating situations of of what we might describe as blowback. So the unintended consequences of our ability to control and rationalize and simplify the non-human world. And that comes across a range of different scales from concerns about emergent antimicrobial resistant pathogens, for example, because we've overused antibiotic drugs, right the way up to extreme weather events, extreme fires and floods that have come about because of the way we've really simplified forest management or or river systems. And we create the conditions for much more extreme events because of the overuse of this antibiotic way of understanding and managing life.
0: So I guess the key point to note here is that complexity and diversity lend themselves to resilient ecosystems. And when we take this sort of antibiotic approach, whether it's like pesticides or herbicides in farming or at a more micro scale for ways to address human diseases, all of these things are non-discriminatory in nature in that they might kill the targeted microbes that we're trying to get rid of or control, but then they also might harm the other very diverse species that actually may support the resilience of the system.
1: That's true. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. You've, really, you've provided a really great summary of, of, I guess, what the book is arguing we need to depart from, or at least that's the first chapter of the story that sets up the, the contemporary probiotic
0: turn. So in the book, you give examples of two major types of rewilding. One is at a macro scale and. In- landscape ecology that I think most people are more familiar with, and another at a more micro scale in the human ecology. So I would love for you to share some examples of these probiotic approaches, maybe especially at the microbial level beyond the commodified supplement of probiotics that people might hear of a lot.
1: I guess, yes, when we think about rewilding, or we think about ecological restoration, we tend to think of big species in in large landscapes. So we think about the wolf, or we might think about the beaver, what are called keystone species that have this ability to restore the functions and dynamics of, of ecologies. What we haven't known much about until very recently is the ecology of what's called the microbiome. So the bacteria, the fungi, and the other invisible organisms that make up the vast majority of life on earth, but also come to make up the vast majority of types of organism that live in, on and around us in in the human body. So with developments in genetic sequencing, it's become much more affordable now to take a sample from the human skin or take a sample from the human gut and to map out the diversity and the ecology of species that live in the human body. And this work helped to make sense of a longer standing hypothesis in immunology and in epidemiology that we were missing what are called old friend microbes. So microbes with which we as a species would have co-evolved over time. But the uh, antibiotic mode of of managing microbial life, so the use of antibiotics, changing hygiene practices, living in smaller families, cut off from contact with soil and, and animals, has meant that we we entered into a condition of what microbiologists describe as dysbiosis, so a kind of ecological imbalance in the human body. And so ecologists have suggested that one way of restoring functional ecosystems is to restore these keystone species. And so people began to think about whether that theory would work at a microbial scale. So could we think about organisms that have this historical relationship with the human microbiome that could be reintroduced in order to make our immune systems work better, to make our gut ecologies work better. And the organisms that I've been studying are helminths, so parasitic worms, with which we co-evolved over our history and which most wild mammals and many people living in, in tropical regions still exist with. And the theory is that the, the worm is something a bit like a keystone species, a bit like a, a wolf or a, or a beaver, in as much as it has the significant effect in configuring the microbiome of the human gut. And so the idea is that you could restore worms or restore what enthusiasts describe as our gut buddies, and the return of the worm would in some ways reset gut ecologies to restore desired functions and services. And so the worm acts much more than a particular strain of bacteria that you might get from from a probiotic supplement, because it's an active living organism that's working on your gut ecologies. So that's the theory, and there's clinical trials underway to test this. It's fair to say they've been inconclusive in proving the efficacy of the worms, but there is a great network of people, citizen scientists, who have decided that this is what they need to take to tackle particular conditions they have, particularly gut conditions, IBD, Crohn's. And they have gone several stages ahead of the clinical trials and have developed networks for growing their own worms, for exchanging worms, for retailing worms online, particularly through through Facebook, and speak very compellingly about how their worlds have been transformed by having access to these particular helmets. So that's, I guess, the sort of flagship example of the probiotic turn on a microbial scale that I've looked at. Other examples relate to the rise of what's called fecal microbiota transplant, which is basically a situation in which people have a very unhealthy ecology in their lower intestine, and they receive an enema, a transplant of healthy stool that displaces this dysbiotic gut ecology and restores gut function. And that's been proved to be very effective for people with long-term antibiotic resistant infections in the in the lower intestine and is now a a licensed therapy by the FDA. So there are small examples underway but it's fair to say that the the complex interactions between the the host the microbiome and the possible keystone species are still being worked out through different scientific experiments at the moment.
0: And I guess when we talk about microbes and taking this sort of probiotic approach at a micro level, I guess part of the challenge with that is our somehow obsession with hygiene, the you know, use of sanitizers, even in textile technologies, they're talking about my antimicrobial fabrics. So there's all these like ideas around antimicrobial everything. And I wonder. What misconceptions about the role of microbial life and even viruses you think need to be debunked in order for our culture and society to be more accepting and supportive of this sort of approach?
1: Yes, it's it's difficult. I mean, I, I wrote the book at the end of 2019, so pre-pandemic, and there was, I would say, a broad acceptance that we needed to be a bit more nuanced in our understanding of microbes, that clearly there were a small number of dangerous pathogens, viruses, bacteria, that killed lots of people in, ma- in many parts of the world, whether that's HIV or, or cholera. But the vast majority of microbial life that make us up is either harmless or actually performs some useful function in the human body. And, and you know, stories were emerging every day about, about the necessity of particular microbes to train the immune system this whole idea of the gut-brain axis that our happy guts make us happy people, that was you know, becoming quite mainstream. And then and then, COVID strikes. And understandably, the big push for public health was around sanitation. It was about hand washing. It was about masks. It was about preventing any kind of microbial exchange. And this broad brush pathologization of microbes, if you like, as being responsible for this terrible, terrible disease that we're, we're still battling. But it does feel a bit like we've gone back many, many stages in that much more nuanced understanding of the good guys and, and the bad guys in the microbiome. I'm optimistic that as, as we, you know, as overcome the pandemic, but also as we start to understand the differential impacts of COVID on individuals, that it will become clear that microbial stewardship, looking after your microbiome, Gives you greater resilience, trains your immune system to better set you up in the face of these pathogens that obviously we still want to control and, and keep at bay. So, the differential life course encounters with microbes seems to be one of the things that helps explain why different people have such different reactions to the virus when when, when they pick it up. To so the extent that some people talk about the potential probiotic benefits of microbial exposure over time to give you a greater resilience in the face of emerging zoonotic pathogens that we might see in the future. Don't forget the earth For it's from the earth we came
0: And don't forget the seas all the forests that gave us our name
1: The first
0: man Believed the earth was green. There's been a common saying that, well, you insert whatever you don't want, and then they say this is a virus. So, for example, hate is a virus, or some people will even go as far to say humans are the virus causing our ecological destruction. They basically use this statement to imply that viruses are inherently harmful. And I wonder if you could speak more to perhaps the historic and evolutionary role of viruses as well that goes beyond them being pathogenic. Because from what I understand, I think they actually supported human evolution and adaptation and also at a more short-term time scale they also support the development of our immune systems as well. So what are some things we need to know about viruses in general beyond the fact that they can be pathogenic and harmful to human or any species that they make their host?
1: Okay, now I should start by saying I'm I'm not a virologist. I'm I'm no <laughs> expert on viruses but from a philosophical perspective what's interesting about viruses and what's interesting about about microbes in general is their ability to exchange genetic material across what we see as distinct species boundaries so we tended i guess to think of the human as a separate thing from a from a monkey and from a from a mouse or from our cats and our dogs and yet when we look at the exchange of species at a microbial level those big organisms are fairly meaningless if you like you know, there's this incredible promiscuity and exchange of materials that goes on all the time around us and and viruses are obviously central to that you know viruses have this amazing ability to spread and and to replicate and there's millions and millions of viruses of which we know a tiny small number and histories of 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 evolution of evolution of of animals suggest this key role of viruses in enabling the exchange of genetic material that ultimately give rise to much more sophisticated organisms, theories of what's called endosymbiosis, this idea that big organisms came about because smaller organisms were combined together, in some ways is a very humbling idea of the human that we are, if you like, warm, fleshy vehicles for the furtherance of microbial projects. Rather than thinking of ourselves as the pinnacle of evolution, we are recent Johnny come lately is, uh, and it's the microbes that have been around for a very long time configuring how life works making ecosystems resilient making ecosystems flourish and we may well find as we get better at sequencing viruses that there are all sorts of viruses that perform beneficial roles for us in changing immune systems there's lots of interest at the moment for example in what are called phages so these are the viruses of bacteria that people suggest could be the new frontier in developing antimicrobial, antibacterial therapeutics. So, as antibiotics sort of cease to work, the idea is that we could find the viruses that are the enemy of the pathogenic microbe we don't want, and develop that in a way that you might use ladybirds to eat aphids on your crops, or you might have nematodes to eat slugs in your garden. The same sort of theory of probiotic biological control could apply at a human level, and we could harness viruses as allies to help us develop both new vaccines, which we're seeing in COVID at the moment, but also to develop new ways of tackling infectious disease.
0: So it's really taking on this more additive approach as opposed to a more reductive one, really going back to the idea that complexity and diversity overall strengthens our Resilience. And you've spoken about how regenerative agriculture in farming exemplifies this probiotic approach in that it really seeks to rebuild diversity and resilience into the system itself to essentially make it less reliant on external inputs and need need for control from the outside. But as you also mentioned, this mindset shifts when we're talking about things like pandemics. And I wonder if part of the challenge is that when farmers are transforming their conventionally managed landscapes into regenerative agriculture, the death and transformation of life forms during that process is accepted and uh, seen as inevitable. But with human life and understandably so, Our fear of death drives us to prioritize immediate guarantees of safety or as close to it as possible. And so we want to reduce all risks of coming into contact with any potentially deadly pathogens. So there's no easy answer to this. And I'm very sensitive to how this question can be misinterpreted as not caring for our most vulnerable. But I guess at what point is our obsession with hygiene for safety at an immediate time scale? detrimental to our collective resilience over a larger timescale, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, what we're increasingly finding out about the development of human immunity is that a lot of it begins very early on in the life course. So a lot of our immune systems are set up in what they call the first thousand days of of a child's life. So from conception through birth, to the early years in which children are first colonized by microbes and then have their immune systems challenged by encounters with particular microbes in the soil or in amongst other people that they meet. And historically, obviously, child mortality was huge and and very good reasons why we really went after water quality, why we went after sanitation, why we improved diet to Know, raise life expectancy and to do away with child mortality, and that's an epic historical project and something that should be really celebrated. But by and large, that is something that many of us, at least in the urban, affluent Western world, take for granted. And there's a sense now that that success in in eradicating or at least domesticating microbes has gone too far, and that for for children raised in these hyper sanitized situations can be prone to a whole set of other non-communicative diseases particularly around allergies or asthma or a range of of other inflammatory gut diseases and so that there's a definite sense there that we need to recalibrate hygiene practices not reject them not a kind of you know let's go back to to the dark ages where we didn't have any of these technologies but can we arrive at a more nuanced ecological understanding of which are the desirable microbial exposures which are the ones we still want to keep at bay, how would you plan that over the life course while recognising that the host has different genetic configurations and needs. It's a really elaborate project. This is the sort of dream of personalised medicine, that you could tailor your microbiome to best fit your your immune system so you would arrive at a kind of optimum configuration. And it's still a pipe dream at the moment, but that, that involves, I guess, holding on to the success of modern hygiene while recognizing the points at which it can go too far, the points at which it can it can become pathological in in itself.
0: Right. So Clearly, our dominant responses to the COVID-19 pandemic has leaned towards being an antibiotic response. But I wonder if you were in charge of our global (laughs) pandemic response, what might taking on a probiotic approach to containing and addressing a virus infection like this look like in a way that can actually build our long-term resilience and will make us less vulnerable to similar pandemics in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean COVID's a very hard one to think with and has definitely challenged my enthusiasm for all things probiotic and thinking about a virus that is that is incredibly able to both spread and, and mutate and that is, you know, deeply pathological to, to many people. And number one priority should be about containing that virus, to prevent its spread, to find ways of vaccinating against it and to, to neutralize it as a threat. And to be honest, the the sort of probiotic options to achieve that are much less developed than the antibiotic techniques. I I mean, I guess if we start to think about vaccines and particularly some of the live strain vaccines, which are in some ways not that dissimilar to a probiotic intervention as much as they're giving the body a a controlled exposure to the thing that might kill it and, and, and calibrating the body in relation to to the virus it might encounter, you could, if you're generous, imagine that within a probiotic form of of intervention. I guess what if we if we step back a stage and think about preventing the next COVID, one of the things that's yet to become clear, but if COVID is akin to other zoonotic diseases, so viruses that cross over from animals, is we need to think seriously about agricultural practices. We need to think seriously about the hygiene practices of intensively farmed agricultural animals that can often be the hotbeds for viruses to cross over from humans into animals and then to propagate radically through global supply chains, through global agricultural supply chains. So so one version of this is to really think about the, the merits of intensive livestock production, to think about the, the globalised food system, which clearly has lots of benefits and lots of efficiencies. But how much does that make us particularly exposed to these pandemics that spread fast in global networks with lots of immunocompromised human and animal bodies living in tight proximity that that can can really spread? How might you kind of de-intensify urban living? How might you de-intensify livestock production to have some firewalls in place to prevent the spread of these viruses until you've got decent vaccine programs in place to, to control them?
0: Mm. Would you say that diversity could act as a firewall?
1: I think so. I mean, I, I don't know enough about how these viruses spread and, and propagate, but it's clear that certainly in livestock populations, if you've got a, a very genetically homogenous group of chickens, for example, with a very homogenous microbiome, they're particularly vulnerable to a disease that might sweep through the chicken population and, and and knock them out. So genetic diversity in the human microbiome, genetic diversity in the wider ecology we live in, one would imagine would provide a buffer against viral emergence. Viruses would have competition. They would be outcompeted by by, by other viruses. Certainly on a, on a landscape scale, if we think about other pathogens, so particular plant pathogens or particular uh, insects that cause lots of issues to to farmers, having a diversity in the ecosystem helps to prevent the spread of bark beetles, let's say, or uh, locusts or, or other organisms that are often dependent upon monocultures of particular crops that allow them to build up to these vast concentrations and then spread elsewhere.
0: Right. And then to go further, to contextualize the work of probiotic rewilding of landscapes with the globalization of the food system, you've noted that we've been freeing up land in the global north for rewilding projects as food production is outsourced to the global south and other parts of the world. So what should we keep in mind when people support rewilding projects? As in, are people in wealthier countries able to enjoy the restoration of the wild at the cost of biodiversity loss in the south, and if so, what are the implications here for perhaps realigning our foodways with our landscapes?
1: Okay, I mean it's a, it's a great question. As as a geographer, I guess I'm always interested in how activities in one part of the world connect to activities in other part of the world. And so, what we've seen with with the rewilding movement, particularly in Europe and North America, is the abandonment of land that is fairly marginal for agriculture or, or for forestry and that wildlife has come back of its own accord or wildlife has been reintroduced through conservation programs. And you have this quite substantial reforestation of Europe and reforestation of North America, the benefits of which largely accrue to people living in Western Europe and, and North America. But at the same time, we're not using any less timber, nor are we eating that much less meat that would once have been raised on this land. and instead that has either been concentrated inside into concentrated animal feeding operations fed on soy or, or, or wheat that's grown in the tropics, or we've outsourced actual production to other parts of the world where there is a, a dewilding taking place. So if you imagine Indonesia, you know lots of rainforest getting cut down to produce palm oil. in Brazil, lots of rainforest getting cut down to produce soy raised beef that you know is no longer grown in in the us it's, it's it's grown elsewhere so so if we think about the sort of global balance arguably there's not a net rewilding taking place there's just a redistribution of the wild and the benefits of that accrue to people living in North America at the expense of people living in the tropics whose land is being is being destroyed whose biodiversity is being lost who become exposed to the issues associated with landscapes that are, that are short on biodiversity. Floods, extreme weather events, disease outbreaks, et cetera, et cetera. So so I guess if you're a, a sophisticated enthusiast for rewilding in Europe and North America, you need to think more holistically about reducing your environmental footprint, reducing the amount of land that is required to sustain your diet. And the most straightforward way of doing that is to think hard about the quantity and the nature of of the meat that you eat, and particularly the beef that, that you eat. And there are you know, arguments that are made to support some forms of, of, of beef production, but not at the scale that, that currently operates globally, that requires huge amounts of land to feed animals through these concentrated feeding operations. And that, you know if you, if you couple a kind of enthusiasm for taking land out of production with an assertive shift away from Beef consumption and other meat consumption towards plant based eating could have a real significant effect on global sustainability, on biodiversity, as well as on climate change.
0: And just one more thing while we're on this topic we know that billionaires are spending a lot of money right now to buy up uh, large swaths of land, some of which are for rewilding projects. But what are the nuances? of this supposedly positive deed, as in what are some concerns if this trend continues and critical ecologies increasingly become privatized?
1: Okay, so I guess in many ways, billionaires are piggybacking on an incredibly concentrated model of land ownership that we have in many parts of the world. So it's not necessarily that rewilding is driving this concentration of land ownership, but it's piggybacking off the fact that certainly in, in the UK, which I know best, bits of Scotland are owned, 50, 60, 70 percent of Scotland is owned by a handful of people who buy these large sporting estates, these stalking estates that exist in the Scottish Highlands, which historically have been cleared of people and turned into sheep ranching operations and then deer stalking operations. And so these individuals buying this land want to rewild it. They don't necessarily want to change that historical status quo through which land was taken from people and, and concentrated into the hands of a few people. And likewise, in, in North America, the history of of the creation of national parks is often about the loss of indigenous people who lived on the land, the, the killing of them in, in colonial ventures such that these could be seen as wilderness places without people that could now be repurposed as sites for conservation or or have become large private ranches. That people now want to turn over to regenerative agriculture. But rewilding in itself doesn't challenge the status quo politically. It doesn't have at its heart a kind of redistributive anti-racist decolonial politics. But you could imagine a version of rewilding that would do that, that would think about the historical justices associated with the loss of biodiversity, the loss of indigenous land ownership, the loss of indigenous knowledge about the land. And you could in some ways, through that model, which is a much more politically radical model, think about a place for people in those landscapes in which people have an ecological role to play within those landscapes. So they're not completely unproductive landscapes. It's just that the nature of agriculture is fundamentally different to the type of agriculture that's largely practiced in these huge enclosed ranches or in some of the you know the big, the big farms that we associate with Nor- Europe and North America.
0: Right. And the one uh, statistic that I love to share on that is one to do with biocultural diversity. So we know that indigenous peoples make up 6.2% of our global population right now, but steward 80 to 85% of our global biodiversity. So that Mm -hmm. to me really speaks volumes and really emphasizes the importance of not excluding people who especially have native knowledges of native ecologies from these landscapes. But thank you so much. We are wrapping up our primary discussion, but I'd love for you to share anything else on your mind that I didn't get to ask you about, as well as your final calls to action for our listeners.
1: Okay. I mean, I I guess where where we left off just then was about how to combine a progressive political agenda with a progressive ecological vision and, and not to see the environment as as something that will be solved through technological solutions. That we need to embed all of this knowledge within the historical, political, cultural context that it, that it works in. And and certainly thinking about regenerative agriculture, which is this really exciting buzzword at the moment, but has a danger of losing sense of its history in agroecological thought and in the ways in which some versions of what is being described as regenerative agriculture have deep roots in indigenous understandings and and land use practices. And so I guess for all of us who are looking for solutions is not to take the solutions in isolation, but to think about the solutions as part of these complex political histories that continue to haunt the present and that we have to live with and and work with and, and try and overcome. The
0: butterfly and the honeybee
1: Oh, let the birds fly and let the people sigh, be sure to forget that you and I Oh, love what you have, but slowly not your hands with the blood, oh, oh.
0: What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow, or a book that's been really profound for you?
1: So the book that I'd recommend is a book called Wilding by Isabella Tree, which is this fantastic autobiographical account written by a woman who takes her farm out of failed dairy production and transforms it into this incredible example of of rewilding in, in, in the UK.
0: What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired?
1: So I guess for me, the key currency is curiosity. I, I'm, I'm a teacher, I love inspiring my students, and it's always trying to find a new angle or something, always trying to look at something from a different direction, always trying to get out of bed and think about things afresh without getting stuck in a groove, without accepting defeat and a kind of pessimistic worldview as, as the default.
0: And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment?
1: I guess I'm I mean I'm sort of forty odd and so I'm starting to feel old and, and I look at my kids, I look at the students that I that I teach, and there is this incredible ecological motivation that I see amongst them, a kind of generation that is much more aware and much more driven to face up to the, the challenges that we see in the present. And so I'm hopeful that the students that I teach and, and the people that I spend time around have the kind of passion and energy and the commitment to bring this long-standing environmental movement to fruition, to really bring about a better future.
0: Thank you so much. Green Dreamer, we're coming to a close. But to learn more and stay updated on Jamie's work, you can follow him on Twitter at JSP Lorimer. And we'll also have links to his books and his work in our show notes as well at greendreamer.com. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciated your time in this conversation. So thank you so much. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: Ooh, that's, a, that's a tricky one. <laughs> I think for me it, it is about this question of curiosity and an appetite for encountering the world anew. You know, we, have, we are surrounded by fantastic podcasts, we're surrounded by fantastic social media, we're surrounded by fantastic film. Is to, to keep challenging yourself to, to address the new and to take on the new in a way that would enhance your world
0: this episode was brought to you by our community and contributing listener patrons. To support this independent media platform, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. The song featured in this episode is butterfly and the honeybee by Jake gauntlet. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production management intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host Kamea Shane. We're deeply grateful to have you and for your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.